this is Dr. Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. We're in a series called Walking with Christ Through the Gospel of Mark. We're coming to Mark 9, and as I mentioned in the last episode, when we get here to Mark 9 and 10, it's right before Mark 11. Great insight, Pastor Ed. Yes, thank you. (laughs) But what I mean is, in Mark 11, Christ makes his way into Jerusalem and to our cross. So the events we're seeing here are are just within a week or so uh, days of Christ going into Jerusalem. I'm calling this episode, Every Kingdom Must Have Its King. And we're going to see here in Mark 9 that Jesus Christ is revealed openly to Peter, James, and John to be the coming king of the coming kingdom, that he is indeed God. Let's go to Mark 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked around about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. So the picture here is, One day Jesus is standing with his disciples and he says, there's some here that before you die, you will see the kingdom of God come. And then it says here in verse 2, six days later, he takes Peter, James, and John with him up into a high mountain. Now, I don't know why he chose just them, although we know that they seem to have been an inner circle among the larger group of the 12 disciples Whatever the reason was, he chose them. He took them up high away from the crowds. If you want to go upward and onward with Jesus, many times you have to be done with mundane earthly things, the things that consume other people. And so they they go up higher. They go up the mountain. And I would describe it like this, that uh, as Spurgeon, the preacher, said many years ago, the amazing thing is not so much what happens here, but that, that throughout his earthly ministry, the glory and, and the true identity of Jesus Christ was actually able to be concealed. 
because here it's like a nuclear explosion of the glory of God bursts forth from within Christ and he, he becomes terrifyingly glorious as God right in front of Peter, James, and John. Now, they had been sleeping. I don't know why, but they woke up and they saw this and it blew them away. They were terrified. And all Peter could stammer was, this, this is great to be here, you know, as opposed, I guess, to being down in the valley where they had come from. Um, great to be here, built three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and almost possibly equating them as equals, but Jesus is God, and they worship Jesus. In fact, from the Gospel of Luke, we know that they were speaking with Jesus about what he was going into Jerusalem to accomplish, that is, dying on the cross to save us from our sins. Moses obviously represents the law of God. Elijah represents the prophets of God. But even more than that, Moses represents those who believe in God but die and they go to heaven through death. Elijah represents those who believe in God who will one day be raptured and not die but go to heaven. And there is a generation of believers that that will occur with. Nevertheless, as great as Moses and Elijah are, they're not God. In the kingdom of God, they worship the king, which is King Jesus, who's openly revealed right here. And I was thinking as I was preparing for this days ago that Christ gives a vision to these disciples to carry them through the valley that's coming because they're going to be devastated when Jesus is killed, uh, you know, crucified, buried, and, and then they had to experience the resurrection. But before that, they were completely devastated. They didn't understand what was happening. But this vision of who Christ is, the king of the coming kingdom, will carry them through that valley. So another principle is revealed here that's true in our Christian life. There will be no crown before a cross. That is, before Christ could be crowned as king of the kingdom, he must go to the cross. Before we can experience great victory many times, we must go through some tough experiences. There's no cross before a crown, my friends. So if you are already a Christian and you want the easy paved highway that just rolls with no problems right into heaven, you signed up on the wrong program. The program that we're in takes us through the valley and it takes us to the cross with Christ. So we see here that every kingdom must have a king and the king of this kingdom that's coming is Jesus Christ. You know, life up high on the mountain is pretty spectacular in our Christian lives, but we can't stay there like Peter suggested. Eventually, we have to go back to the regular life that we know and, and take with us what happened on the mountain into regular life so we can influence other people for our king. Verse 11, and they ask him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be said at naught. 
But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. So he spoke here, we know from the Gospels, he spoke here of John the Baptist being the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, the power of Elijah. And he said, e even him they have mistreated, because you remember in Mark, we've seen that John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, the wicked, evil, imposter, non-Jewish king of the Jews. <laughs> wow. Hey, life down on earth is messy. You probably already figured that out. Well, it, it, we're going to see how messy it can be in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, so he goes back to the remaining uh, nine, so there's 12 disciples and others around them, I'm sure. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered, said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. That is, this, this son was mute and could not speak. And what, whence, wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now let's stop right there just for a minute. Possibly the scribes were taunting the disciples or, or trying to instruct them one or the other that this was a completely impossible situation. From their viewpoint, um, I have read that the... Um, for someone to be freed from a demon, the exorciser had to know the demon's name. The demon had to say his name so he could order that demon by name to leave. Well, if this little child was mute, he couldn't speak, so therefore the demon's name would never be revealed, therefore it's an impossible situation. The scribes were you know, possibly frustrated or taunting the disciples. The disciples were frustrated for sure. Like I said, life down here is messy a lot of times. The father is frustrated and the little boy is still possessed. This is terrible. So finally, the um, they come to Jesus and Jesus says, bring him to me. All right. Verse 20, and they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. So uh, no matter how old the, the boy was, this has been from childhood. I keep saying he was small. Maybe he wasn't that small, but, but this had been a long-term thing. It didn't just start last week. This was indeed, from a human viewpoint, an impossible situation. And uh, so he, he deals with him right here. Now, by the way, a little principle. When Jesus asked him, how long ago is it since this came unto him? When God asks us questions, it's not to get information. God already knows. He's establishing here that this is indeed a difficult, impossible situation from a human viewpoint. Verse 22. 
and oft times that it cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And you know, this guy was very honest. He wasn't faking it. He said, I, I believe, but I have doubts. Please help me, Lord. Help my, help my doubts. Help my unbelief. And you know, when we come to Christ sincerely like that, he doesn't send us away. So maybe you're in an impossible situation. Call out to the Lord, and I believe the Lord will help you. Verse 25. Now here's another principle. In the kingdom, the kingdom is not set up for circus acts and sideshows. Miracles are not done in the kingdom for the entertainment or amazement of people. They're done to point people to Jesus Christ as the king of that kingdom. So with that principle in mind, in verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. See, Jesus didn't have to know the name of that demon. He just said, get out, don't come back. And he did it in his authority as king. So what happened? Verse 26, And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So Jesus establishes himself as the true king of the kingdom here in Mark 9, not only being manifested on the mountaintop as the king, but displaying his total, absolute power as king over impossible spiritual forces. Even they had to obey Jesus. Jesus is revealing to us here, by the way, in Mark 9, that there's more to life than, than we often see. We see, you know, what is it, three dimensions. There's a fourth dimension. It's a spiritual dimension. It's one, in fact, that he controls. And if people want to seek, as they are fond of saying today, spirituality, you don't go to Satan for that or demons. You, you don't go into Eastern mysticism and Eastern religions. You come to Jesus because he is the king of all dimensions. He is the king of the kingdom, and even the demonic has to bow at his feet in terror. This is King Jesus. So as we mentioned, life is messy when we're not on the mountaintop, but Jesus doesn't keep him from being king. Amen? He's still king, and we can still follow him. Verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. So at this time, Jesus is not interesting in great crowds following him. He's making a straight path for the cross in Jerusalem and to spend more time teaching his disciples before he leaves them. 
31, verse 31, For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man, that, that's him of course, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Now that's pretty clear to you and me, but we have the Gospels and we know how they end, right? We've got the rest of the Bible, but the disciples didn't have all of that. And for many reasons, they could not understand what he was talking about. Verse 32 says that, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. By the way, if you don't understand something about your life, about the Word of God, about Christ, about all these important things, and you're afraid to ask for help, that's a deadly combination. If you realize that you do not know things that you need to know, you do not have help that you need to have, humble yourself and ask for help. Jesus will help you. People may not be able to, but Jesus will certainly help you. Come to him today. Verse 33, And he came to Capernaum. Now this is where he had sort of set up a base of operations, a headquarters, if you will. And maybe they were in Peter's house here because he had a house in Capernaum. In fact, we know where that is even today. It still exists. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves, by the way? Now remember that principle. Whenever God asks us a question, it's not for information. He already knows. He's asking for our benefit. Verse 34, But they held their peace. Now this is one of those embarrassing silences. <laughs> We've all had them. But they held their peace. For, by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. I can't even believe this was an argument, but I do believe it because we're just like them. Now, Peter, James, and John had just seen this amazing display of the glory of Christ on the mountaintop, that he is the king of the kingdom. He is, in fact, the greatest of all time. And we know, we'll see later in our next episode next week, that Peter, excuse me, James and John, these thoughts about who would be the greatest, them, of course, uh, were on, was on their minds. So, you know, we're not better than them. And as disciples, sometimes I think we're all crazy because we get all tied up in ourselves and our position and all of that. And this is what they were arguing about. Well, well, I should be the greatest because, no, 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 I'm the greatest and we're the greatest and uh, you're not the greatest, I'm the greatest. Come on, Jesus is the only one who's great and he is the greatest of all time. Verse 35. Now, by the way, you need to know this. When a rabbi was about to teach, he would sit down. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such, one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, 
we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto ye, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Wow. You know, in a, in a coming kingdom that, that, uh, that takes down an existing corrupt kingdom like the world system is, this coming kingdom is going to have a totally new set of values, and Christ reveals them right here. The greatest people in the kingdom are those who put themselves last. In other words, they put others first. The greatest people in the coming kingdom, they will be like the king of that kingdom in that they will not come to be served by others. It's not how many people serve you, it's how many people you serve just like Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. So those that put others first, themselves last, those who serve others rather than be served, they're the, they're the greatest in the kingdom because the kingdom, see the world system is really upside down. When the kingdom of God comes, it's going to put things right the way they ought to be, but things are, we're so used to things being that are wrong being right, that when things are put right, they're going to look wrong. You follow me on that? So Christ is saying here, your, your values have got to change radically in this kingdom. In fact, you have to be like a little child to believe in me. And then he gives a warning as well. Um, the, a couple of warnings here, I think. John brought up the fact that someone was casting out demons, but they weren't with their particular circle. And Jesus says, hey, he can't do that unless he truly believes in me. And if, he's, if he believes in me and he's doing that kind of miracle, he's part of us, even though you may not know him or you might not even approve of him. He's obviously doing the right thing. So we just be careful not to be like really exclusively minded in the kingdom, that everybody's got to be exactly like you, and say and do everything exactly like you do. You know, Christ's kingdom is a very large kingdom. And as long as they are rightly related, you know, they're saved and they're rightly related to the king of the kingdom, they're in the kingdom, even though they may irritate you. <laughs> so so Jesus corrects that, that kind of like that provincial attitude of just, you know, keeping everything small. He says, hey, this is a big kingdom, and there's people working in it, John, with me and for me, and I'm working through them that you don't, don't maybe even think should be, but I'm working through them. So anyway, he, he corrects that misunderstanding, and then he, regarding the child, the children, he, he warns about mistreating I think this is on two levels, mistreating people who believe in him, that if you're doing that, you're going to be in big trouble. So if you're not a Christian today and you're mocking Christians and you're making life hard for those who believe in Jesus and your family or where you work, 
you are on immensely thin ice, according to Jesus. And you need to repent, and you need to believe in Christ. But I think there's also another level here, too, as well. Jesus really does love the children. And those who mistreat the children, and you can start filling in blanks here of political organizations and organizations that make their statements about, you know, women's rights, and you fill in the blanks, you get it. Those people and those organizations need to repent because they are for sure on immensely thin ice. Jesus cares a whole lot about how a society treats its children, born and unborn. Let's go now to verse 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, it is better for thee to enter hauled into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, for it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Pastor Ed, is hell real? Yeah, it's real, according to Jesus Christ right here. Now, by the way, if you're thinking, well, I guess I could be a better Christian if I cut off a hand or foot or plucked out an eye. There's no record of Peter, James, and John, any of the disciples, the apostles doing that. The early church didn't do it. Paul, one of the greatest Christians ever to live, never did anything like that. So he's not telling us to literally do that. He's saying as much as we value our hands, our feet, and our eyes, and they're priceless, thank you, Lord, as much as we value them, anything that that would, in other words, if those are even causing us to get into sin, it would be better to lose one of those members and make our way to heaven through Christ than to enter into hell having two hands, two feet, and two eyes. That's, the, that's how high the stakes are. That's what he's saying. So hell is very real or he would never have come from heaven and gone to the cross and gone through all of that. He knows we're headed for it and he's determined to deliver us if we will only trust him as Savior and Lord. Verse 49 and 50. For every one shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. And this was certainly true in the temple worship. This is something they would have been very familiar with. Every sacrifice included salt. Verse 50, salt is good. That is, salt purifies, it stings and cleanses a wound, it seasons meat, it even it preserves food. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? I mean, that's obvious, right? 
So then he says, have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So we see that the kingdom values, uh, when compared to the world system, seem upside down, but they're actually correct, and the world is, is currently upside down. Christ is going to put everything right when he comes back in the kingdom of God, and he is, in fact, the coming king of that kingdom. The question is, today, if you are not a Christian, is Christ your king? And the answer is, well, no, he's not. Not if you're not a Christian. You need to turn today in faith, trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross to pay for your sins. You know you have a load of sin that you can never atone for. Jesus did that. He did it for you. He rose again the third day, victorious over death. It proves that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. He, he lives now in heaven. He's coming again. If you will trust him as your Savior and Lord, he will save even you. Amen. Because I know he saved me. Amen. So I hope you will do that today. If you are a Christian, make sure that kingdom values are permeating your life down here where life is messy. And when you get discouraged, remember the mountaintop and the king of the kingdom, and he's on his way. Thanks so much for joining us today. Tell others about the podcast. They can find it at www.dredhill.podbean.com. That's D-R, no period after the D-R, dredhill.podbean.com. They can go there directly and download the app and listen for free. They can find us on iTunes and Google Play. Thanks so much for listening in. I'll see you in the next episode in Mark chapter 10.